0: Well, podcasters, welcome to our 2020 Christmas special, episode 23 of our Banking Litigation podcast. We have a Christmas cracker of an episode lined up for you today, bursting with legal updates, poorly executed puns, and a few musical interludes before we round the episode off with a bang, as all crackers do in the form of a visit from a few Christmas elves. But let me start by, as ever, introducing uh, my co-host, Kerry. Good evening, Kerry. Evening,
1: John. Good evening, John.
0: Uh, Annabelle Davis, who makes this all happen, sitting behind the glass, and our guest speaker uh, this evening, Mark Tanner. Hello, Mark. Good evening, John. Good evening, podcasters. Thank you, Mark. Uh, So this evening, we're going to get off to a flying start. No turkeys here, though. Um, Kerry, you're going to take us through the latest uh, case on reflective loss, a legal principle that's attracted a lot of attention uh, in the past year. Uh, you, You snow the drill, Kerry. Over to you.
1: Yeah, thanks, John. Um, So the case I'm kicking off with today is Broadcasting Investment Group and Smith, which is the first case to consider the so-called reflective loss principle since the Supreme Court's judgment in Sevier and Marex.
0: Our podcasters might recall uh, that case in the August edition, I think it was, uh, Kerry, but it's quite a while ago. Uh, Would you mind reflecting on both the principle itself and the judgment in Marex?
1: Yeah, I agree, John. Where has the year gone? And then, on the other hand, a year that seems to have dragged on forever. But anyway, I'll start off with the reflective loss principle itself, as it's now understood in a post-Marex world. In a nutshell, this is a bright line legal rule which prevents shareholders from bringing a certain type of claim. And there are really two key features of the type of claim barred by the rule. The first is the identity of the parties. The reflective loss principle is engaged in shareholder claims against a third party wrongdoer, where the company in which the shareholder owns its shares has a potential claim against the same third party wrongdoer. The second feature is the type of loss suffered. The principle applies where the shareholder is trying to recover a fall in the value of their shares, but where that drop in value is actually because the company has suffered loss. And obviously the company's loss in this type of situation is due to the actions of the third party wrongdoer. The principle was first established back in 1982 in Prudential and Newman Industries. However, over the years, it was extended to situations outside shareholder claims in a way that was likened to a legal version of Japanese knotweed. Or um, or what was your Dorset equivalent, John?
0: Caravans and Dorset lanes. No, it was um, old Dorset (laughs) peeler, which is a kind of knotweed down here.
1: Okay that's the one, I like the caravan analogy. Um, So earlier this year the Supreme Court had the chance to have its say on the principle in the Marek's case and the Supreme Court by a four to three majority confirmed the narrow ambit of the principle as I just summarised a few minutes ago. In particular the court said that the principle should be applied no wider than to shareholders and specifically does not extend to prevent claims brought by creditors. The reflective loss principle is an interesting one for banks as it operates as a defence to shareholder claims, which we know there can be quite a lot of. The scope of the principle therefore dictates the circumstances in which such claims can be brought against financial institutions. Now, a lot of cases were stayed pending the outcome in Marex. So the recent decision in B.I.G. and Smith, it sounds like some sort of wraps on is just the first in what we anticipate will be a flood of judgments in the coming year or so.
2: Yes, Kerry, it will be interesting to see how these shape the principle in the uh, post-Marex world. And I was talking to a couple of colleagues who have a couple of cases on the go uh, that are affected by Marex.
1: Yeah, it seems to pop up all over the place. Um, So turning back to B.I.G. and Smith, the court had to grapple with the novel situation of whether the reflective loss principle should bar the claim of a shareholder in a shareholder.
2: So that's not the direct shareholder itself, but a shareholder in that shareholder, like a quasi-shareholder.
1: Yeah, precisely. And interestingly, that that you should use that terminology because the court did the same. Um, it actually sounds more complicated than it is, really, because we're just talking about a shareholder who is one step removed from owning the shares in the relevant company. So in B.I.G. and Smith, there was a claim by both the direct shareholder and also a claim by a shareholder in that shareholder, Mark's quasi shareholder. And the court was prepared to strike out the claim brought by the direct shareholder in the company on the basis of the reflective loss principle. But the court refused to bar the claim of the quasi-shareholder. Following the reflective loss principle bars only shareholders in the loss suffering company and is, and I'll quote, a highly specified uh, exception of no wider ambit. So the court found that the principal, therefore, did not operate to bar the claim of a quasi-shareholder.
0: What significance do you think this will have from uh, the perspective of our banks? That's really why we're here.
1: Yeah, so I'll start with the good news. Um, There was a risk in Marex that the rule would would have been lost altogether and it clearly hasn't been and will therefore continue to operate to bar the claims of direct shareholders against banks.
2: And am I correct in thinking that it doesn't apply to claims brought under Section 90 and 90A of the FSMA 2000?
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. So FSMA provides a statutory exemption in that context. Um, But now for the downside, the rule will not operate in relation to a quasi shareholder. So where it's alleged that a corporate customer has suffered loss for which the bank is responsible, a claim could theoretically be brought by both the company and a quasi shareholder where there's a chain of shareholder ownership in the relevant company. However, this news isn't really as bad as it might first appear, as the quasi-shareholder must have an independent cause of action against the bank.
0: So I think in most cases there should be good arguments to say that there is no contractual relationship and no duty of care owed to a second or third degree shareholder.
1: Yep, exactly, John. Um, So for a more detailed discussion of this case, please head over to our banking litigation blog post, a link for which is in the show notes.
0: Thanks Kerry uh, for that very comprehensive introduction. Uh, It seems fitting to include a feature on COVID in our final episode of 2020. And I think Mark, uh, you're up next with two case updates that have particular relevance for COVID related disputes. Uh, I think like most firms, after an initial flurry of queries back in March, we've seen relatively few new claims coming solely as a consequence of the pandemic. But I suspect that there are quite a few on the horizon. So we're keeping our eyes peeled for decisions that are likely to have read-across value for these disputes. But over to you, Mark.
2: Thanks, John. Um, Yes, the first case I'm going to talk about is TOTSA total oil trading versus new stream trading, which looked at the impact of a force majeure clause. Uh, And in that case, the Commercial Court considered the impact of a force majeure clause on a seller's repayment obligation in a contract for the sale of goods. Um, As some very... Brief background, the seller in this case had been prevented from delivering the relevant goods due to a force majeure event, and although the force majeure event in that case was not related to COVID-19, the judgment will be of interest to banks which are considering the ongoing impact of the pandemic.
1: Yeah, it certainly will be, Mark. The number of hits we've had on our blog post covering this case really shows the spotlight that COVID-19 has cast over cases involving force majeure, frustration, material adverse change, etc.
2: Yes, exactly. The court's approach in cases such as this one, hopefully gives some insight into the potential approach the court might take as to whether the pandemic or events relating to it will enable counterparties to delay or avoid performance or to terminate agreements. The high level outcome in the case is that the court granted summary judgment on the buyer's claim for repayment. And this was because on the proper construction of the contract, the court said that the repayment obligation kicked in if the product was not delivered in accordance with the contract. Now, Force majeure clauses are, of course, ultimately a creature of contract, and so the outcome of each case will depend on the contractual construction of the particular clause.
0: So, what would you say was a key takeaway
2: from um, this particular example of the clause, Mark? I think I think that a, that a valid claim to force majeure will not necessarily relieve the party of all of its obligations under the contract. So here, although there was indeed a force majeure event, the seller still had to make good on its repayment obligation. And if you'd like a little bit more detail on this case, we do, of course, have a blog post and there's a link in the show notes.
0: Thank you for that, Mark. I'm hoping that the uh, seller in the case isn't responsible for the delivery of my new Christmas presents, in particular, my new ukulele. I think I need a new one. Sorry, Mark, I
2: think you've got another case for us. Uh, yes, yeah, hopefully uh, there's some lessons uh, in the post as well from Santa. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so my next case, is the Aegean Baltic Bank uh, versus Renslaw, which is relevant to banks considering the exercise of their contractual rights under loan agreements following a default by the borrower. A scenario which is unfortunately becoming increasingly more common as a result of the pandemic. Um, so I'll start off uh, with an overview of the facts. Um, the claimant bank entered into a loan agreement uh, and also some related security agreements uh, with a couple of ship owners. Uh, this was so the ship owners had funds for repairs and to provide liquidity for a shipping vessel. Unfortunately, the vessel in question was damaged and then later abandoned. For a ship? Quite. And the ship owners, as these things tend to go, ceased to make repayments. And the bank therefore issued a claim to recover the outstanding sums due but the ship owners resisted the claim, saying that the bank had acted negligently or otherwise in breach of duty in the way that it had exercised its rights under the agreements. In particular, an alleged duty relating to the bank's conduct of certain insurance claims following damage to the shipping vessel. The court ultimately found in favour of the bank, ordering the ship owners to pay the outstanding sums due. However, there's some interesting analysis in the judgment on the alleged duty for the bank to exercise its rights under the finance agreements, and I'll quote, to ensure a fair and reasonable recovery of insurance proceeds.
0: What was the basis for the duty, Mark? I'm guessing there's nothing in the contract. Was it an implied term that was alleged?
2: Yeah, that was one of the grounds, John. Um, But the ship owners also said that the duty was owed at common law and in equity. And it's the equitable duty that caught my eye, actually, on this case, um, because the court actually found that the bank did owe a duty in equity both as a matter of law and by reason of its status as a security holder, in respect of the exercise of its relevant rights under the agreements. However, the Court said that this duty was capable of amendment and constriction by contractual agreements, and on the facts in this case, the contract had restricted the bank's liability, and so there was in fact no breach of
1: the duty. And so Mark, in terms of the lesson to be learned from this case in the context of Covid-related disputes, what would you pull out as the main point?
2: I'd highlight two points, if I may, Kerry, actually. Um, I think it serves as a useful reminder that a bank exercising its enforcement rights under a finance agreement may be subject to additional duties, which are outside the four corners of the contract. And the second point I'd highlight is that even if this sort of duty arises, the bank's actions in exercising its enforcement rights will not automatically result in the breach of the duty. There's a bit more detail on all of this in our blog post for those who would like a better understanding of the court's reasoning in this case. And as ever, you can find a link in the show notes, of course.
0: Thank you, Mark. We, we may have seen three ships come sailing by, but hopefully the one that was abandoned was not on the Dorset Jurassic Coast. Thanks for those updates. Um, as I said, they're increasingly likely to frame our understanding of the next wave of Covid disputes. Let me take you now, podcasters, through the next section, which is our Bonanza Christmas class action update with three interesting developments to whistle through. Uh, So first off, uh, an English High Court decision and some good news for class action defendants. It looks as if parent companies are on the nice list this year as the decision in, and forgive my pronunciation, Municipio di Mariana against BHP which confirmed the willingness of English courts in appropriate cases to strike out parent liability claims as an abusive process. At a very high level summary, in this case, the High high Court struck out the claims of over 200,000 claimants against two companies in a group of companies, which were domiciled in England and Australia respectively, arising out of an incident in Brazil And the claims were struck out as an abusive process in light of concurrent proceedings and compensation schemes in Brazil. I won't go into the facts because the decisions um, in a non-financial context, but the overall message conveyed is both relevant and, I suppose, comforting for UK domiciled financial institutions at risk of claims which allege a duty of care in relation to the actions of their foreign subsidiaries.
2: Mm-hmm. John, this, this reminds me of the Vedanta decision last year. And if my memory serves me correctly, that case also looks at parent company liability. And So how does this current case fit with uh, that decision?
0: Yes, thanks, Mark. Interesting that you flagged Vedanta. You'll recall that was a Supreme Court decision looking at parent company liability in the context of a jurisdictional battle and whether the implementation of group-wide policies was arguably sufficient to find a duty of care owed by a parent company to third parties. You'll remember that in Vedanta, the Supreme Court noted that whilst group-wide policies do not of themselves give rise to a duty of care, they may do so if the parent company takes active steps through training or supervision and enforcement to see that they're implemented in its and in its published materials holds itself out as exercising that degree of supervision. But going back to the uh, case I'm talking about, The BHP decision now provides some comfort to UK financial institutions exposed to this type of parent liability claim. In particular, BHP confirms that the English court is prepared to take a robust approach on strikeout where the claim is a clear abusive process, especially where there's no compelling evidence of difficulties in bringing the claim in the relevant foreign jurisdiction, and particularly where there is a concurrent claim in the relevant foreign jurisdiction which relates to the same issues and involves many of the same claimants who are seeking the same compensation for the same alleged damages.
1: From my perspective, John, BHP is certainly helpful given the uptick of so-called class action tourism in this jurisdiction. But what do you think?
0: Perhaps the only tourism we're seeing at the moment is is class action tourism. Yep, Uh, we're increasingly seeing groups of foreign claimants bringing claims in the English court against uh, UK domiciled parent companies in respect of wrongdoing by its foreign subsidiary. So the, the key point from the BHP decision is to illustrate the English court's willingness to strike out claims in appropriate cases. I think it's very much carry a case-by-case case, uh, analysis. Now, for my second update, I'll be taking you podcasters on a festive trip to France. So, joyeux Noël to you all. I'm going to tell you all about uh, uh, some proposals for a new general regime for class actions in France, which were recently presented to the French National Assembly. And the important point is, if accepted, these will replace the current sector-based approach, where class actions are governed by a variety of consumer, environmental, public health and employment legislation. It will also expand substantially the list of organisations
2: or bodies that could initiate a class action. So, John, bearing in mind that this is a development in a foreign jurisdiction, can you tell us a bit more about what this might mean for in-house lawyers uh, in banks in this jurisdiction?
0: Of course, Mark. I mean, I think the point, um, as Kerry raised a minute ago, is there's a growing trend in class action tourism. And these changes could have an impact on financial institutions operating uh, with a customer base in France, with the claimants, uh, I suppose, having another option now, potentially choosing to commence claims in France, if the rules are seen to be less complex or less restrictive uh, than those elsewhere. But for more information, please head over to our blog post. Um, As ever, the link is in the show notes.
1: And how will you round off this jolly hat trick, John?
0: Jolly indeed, Kerry. Uh, Well, with a not so subtle promotion of an article uh, published by the Journal of International Banking Law and Regulation and written by members of our uh, securities class action practice. It has the snappy title, Capital Raisings and Opportunistic M&A in a COVID-19 Environment, Lessons Learned from the Global Financial Crisis. Perfect for some light reading by the fireplace, along with some eggnog. But the the article is actually very interesting. It offers some uh, insight into class action-specific issues which companies might face when bolstering uh, their capital positions or engaging in strategic M&A when trying to operate um, in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic. But uh, there's a link in the show notes below. And with that, I will move on to the final feature of this month's podcast. Uh, to end our Christmas special edition, we're joined today by some very special uh, little elves from the North Pole. Or rather, my son Freddie. hello Freddie, uh, who's eight, uh, Kerry's daughter Gwyneth, who's also eight, and Mark's children, uh, Lucia and Lucas. Welcome to all the elves. In a year where our work and home lives have um, collided, uh, it feels like a fitting end to be joined by uh, these wonderful children today. Uh, They are perhaps the youngest fans of the podcast series, and it's a pleasure to be able to welcome them into the world of work after months of trying to stop them uh, popping up on video conferences, uh, always at the most inopportune moments. Uh, So without further ado, I will hand over to the next generation, and who knows, perhaps the next generation of lawyers of the future, uh, and what topic is best to start with? I think Brexit, Freddie. Over to you.
3: As our podcasters will know, on the 23rd of June 2016, 52% of adults in the UK voted to leave the European Union. While I was too young to vote, from what I have read, it all seems very complicated. The UK formally yet left the EU on 31st January 2020. Daddy tells me that most things have remained the same since then because of the transition period provided for in the withdrawal agreement between the UK and the EU. However, on the 31st of December 2020, this transition period will come to an end. Today, I am joined by Gwyneth, Lucia and Lucas, We are going to have a look at the key consequences of the end of the transition period from a litigation
4: perspective.
0: Over to you Gwyneth.
4: Thank you Freddie. I think one of the biggest questions for litigators is what will happen in the terms of jurisdiction and enforcement of judgments after the 31st of December. In a nutshell it is really rather complicated as Freddie said, and the best thing to do is to listen to our webinar. This subject is expertly covered by Maura McIntosh, who Mummy has told me is very clever. You can find a link in the show notes. I do know that one big question is whether the EU will consent to the UK's accession to the, the Lugano Convention in its own right. Apparently, if The EU does agree things will be a lot smoother as there will be little change from the current regime so I have my fingers crossed. Thank you Gwyneth
3: that was very interesting. I will now hand over to Lucy and Lucas to tell us about the impact of Brexit and the applicability of
4: EU law in the UK. Thanks, Freddie. Just to make it all the more confusing, another change at the end of the transition period is that EU law will no longer apply in the UK. Don't make it sound so bad, Lucas. My dad told me that there is something called retained law. This is a law that is derived from EU law or is directly effective EU law and will continue to apply in the UK. Oh yes that is very true. UK courts will also continue to to apply any EU EU court decisions that are made before the end of the transition period too. But don't forget that will not extend to appellate courts in the UK. Also any EU court decisions made after the end of the transition period will not be binding. Of course, you're quite right, Lucia.
0: Well, thank you all, elves, for your wonderful contribution. And thank you, podcasters, for uh, an excellent year where you've um, tuned in, supported the channel and um, fed us some very interesting uh, food for thought. Um, Thank you today to my co-host, Kerry, uh, as ever, for a a very smooth show, to uh, Annabelle for um, making it all happen, and to our guest... um, Mark, uh, Tanner, and the children. Um, Thank you all very much. Uh, Wishing you all a very Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year.